My name's Carol. Uh, Our Bible reading is Matthew chapter 16, 1 to 28. That's the whole chapter. Matthew chapter 16. The Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. He replied, When evening comes, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red, and in the morning, today it will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left them and went away. When they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They discussed this among themselves and said, It is because we didn't bring any bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, You of little faith, why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? How is it that you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread? But be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread but against the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? 
Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. I'll pray for us. Loving Father and Almighty God, we thank you so much for your word, the Bible. We thank you for our Saviour and Lord Jesus. And Lord, we want to understand his command to us today to take up your cross and follow him. Help us to understand what it means to do that and then help us to understand what it means to do that in our own lives so that we might, we might obey him and uh, bring him glory with our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus said in verse 24, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, <clears throat> excuse me, take up their cross and follow me. How do you do that? What does that mean? What does that look like? What's that look like for you? Take up your cross. None of us literally has a cross uh, to take up. Um, I take it the least the vast majority of us, if not all of us, are Jesus' disciples or want to be, so we must obey this command. If we want to be his disciple, we must deny ourselves, firstly, and then secondly, take up our cross and follow him. So what's it mean to deny yourself? What's it mean to take up your cross? And thankfully, we've got this picture to help us to understand it. Clear as mud now? Here is a train sitting in a field of flowers, relaxing, enjoying the warm sun and the cool breeze. He's just chilling in a field, uh, lapping up life. Question, what does a Christian life and a train sitting in a field of flowers have in common? The answer, of course, is nothing. (laughs) Absolutely nothing. Um, But sadly, I don't think that's always the case. I think sometimes we think that the Christian life is just like a train that's sitting in a field of flowers, relaxing, enjoying the warm sun and the cool breeze. I think all too often we think the two are very similar and we behave accordingly. Now, why is that a problem and what on earth does it have to do with taking up your cross, I hear you ask? Well, let's find out. Um, Verse 1. So... There's three things you absolutely must do, according to Jesus, in order to take up your cross and follow him. And they're all laid out for us in this chapter, the three things. And they're all laid out for you on your handout as well. If you've got a handout, there's three points. That's the three things you have to do if you want to take up your cross and follow Jesus. At the start of chapter 16, as in the start of chapter 15, Jesus is once again confronted by the Pharisees, but also they've got their friends along. They're not actually that good friends, the Pharisees and Sadducees, but the Sadducees are along as well. They're in Jesus' face once again, and they're helpfully, again, revealing to us what not to do in order to take up your cross and follow Jesus. Now, the Sadducees and Pharisees are a little bit different. The Sadducees actually think God's word is okay uh, as it is and doesn't need adding to But the Sadducees don't want to displease anyone in the world. So the Sadducees very much suck up to the Roman authorities and are happy to kind of acquiesce to whatever they want them to do. Whereas the Pharisees, 
they, uh, they trust in themselves and they trust in the man-made traditions, the hundreds, literally hundreds of rules that they've added, supposedly, to the Bible, and they trust themselves in their obedience to those things. The Pharisees trust themselves, the Sadducees trust the world, uh, the government authorities at this time, the Romans. But taking up your cross means not trusting the world and not trusting yourself. Let me explain. If you look at verse 1, you can see the Pharisees and Sadducees asked Jesus for a sign from heaven. This is the man who's walked on water. He's miraculously fed thousands of people, not once, but twice. And he's miraculously healed countless people. And they're asking for a sign. What What sign did you have in mind over and above what I've already done exactly? And the fact that they're still asking for a sign is proof They can't see the signs that are already right there before their very eyes. It's clear they're spiritually blinded. And Jesus remarks, well, you can see the weather well enough, apparently, but you can't see your own Messiah who's standing right in front of you. He says in verse 4, his reply is unsurprising. Look with me at verse 4. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. And Jesus then left them and went away. Well, the sign of Jonah is a sign of someone who's been dead, it seems, for three days and then risen back to new life. It's the story of Jonah. He was swallowed by a big fish. He was in the belly of the fish for three days. Seemingly, you would think someone's dead if they'd been swallowed by a big fish. But God kept Jonah alive and the fish spat Jonah back out. So the sign of Jonah is that someone will die and three days later come back to life. That's the sign that they will see from Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus will be the ultimate sign that the one who they seek to criticise and ultimately kill is indeed the Lord and the Messiah that they should be bowing down before. That's the only sign they're going to get out of Jesus from here on. Now, verses 5 to 12, if you look, they round out the chapter, um, they round out this section, sorry, I don't know, it seems kind of comical to me in a plain reading. It kind of reads as if the disciples are a bit dopey, um, which is effectively confirmed by Jesus in verse 9. Let me read it with you with a bit of exaggeration thrown in for effect. Uh, When they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They discuss this amongst themselves. What does that mean? I reckon it's because we didn't bring any bread, Bartholomew says. I told you not to forget the bread, James. I thought you were talking to the other James, not to me. I didn't bring the bread. I thought he was getting it. It's not about the bread, guys. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, you of little faith, why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember? The five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls you gathered, or the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls you gathered. You don't need bread when you've got me, you fools. I'm the bread, and I can provide your every need. Forget about the bread, my goodness. Get over the bread. How is it, verse 11, you don't understand, I was not talking to you about bread. Now, I could just see myself getting thoroughly frustrated if I was Jesus in this moment after all I've done. But no doubt I have quite a ways to go before I reach the patience of Jesus. Um, Ask Clara, I should tell you. Jesus continued, 
Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Oh, that bread, the disciples say. Spiritual bread. Right, gotcha. Then they understood he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I'd love to be in a fly on the wall of the boat. Yeast is used to make the bread grow, expand and rise. Who makes their own bread at home? Anyone? And you kind of have your yeast culture sitting somewhere and you use that uh, for the bread. Um, The yeast helps it rise. And if there's too much yeast, I extend the bread will rise way too much and kind of just explode or go to pieces. Well, it's similar with false teaching and evil motives. False teaching and sinful motives grow and grow fast and they expand and eventually destroy a community. The Sadducees and Pharisees actually didn't see eye to eye, but they had a common enemy in Jesus. They are the yeast that's ruining God's people, the church. The Sadducees were fairly true to God's word but weren't interested in rocking the institutional boat, the Roman Empire. Um, If keeping God's word meant upsetting the Romans, well, that's where they're going to get off the boat. The Sadducees were spineless. And Jesus was certainly creating waves in Judea and now Jerusalem, so they wanted no part with him. The Pharisees wanted to add hundreds of rules and traditions to God's word to make a system that depended on them for salvation rather than God. (coughs) Excuse me. The Pharisees were legalists and egotistical, and Jesus was saying, no, 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 don't trust yourselves. Trust in me. So they wanted no part with him. The Sadducees wanted no part with him. The Pharisees wanted no part with him for two different reasons. Can you see the Sadducees had way too much trust in the Romans and the Pharisees had way too much trust in themselves? Neither was willing to take up their cross and follow Jesus. To take up your cross is to not depend on human organisations and institutions, nor to depend on yourself for salvation. To take up your cross is to depend entirely on Jesus for salvation. We're largely very well educated, very wealthy on a world standard. We're constantly tempted to trust ourselves for our salvation, constantly. The temptation is there. We have incredible resources in our city, education, work, health care. It's like five medical centres in Gregory Hills or something. And so we're constantly tempted to trust in our world for salvation, especially us who live in the city. I was talking to someone just the other day about how people in the country are a lot more interdependent with one another. But in the city, we're a lot more individualistic because we have all these resources at our disposal. Now, COVID really tested us, didn't it? Because it took a lot of our security away. The healthcare system started to really, really struggle under the weight of COVID. Schools, school was taken away. Church was taken away. Our ability to gather was taken away. The government stepped in and closed churches. Even our toilet paper was taken away. Do you remember that? How did we respond in that situation? How did you respond when all your securities, human-made, 
were taken away. Did you freak out just a bit? I did freak out just a bit, at least just a bit. I think we all did to an extent. Our trust in Jesus was really tested, wasn't it, during those lockdowns? And it was exposed in its weakness, was it not? How much we depend on the world for our joy and contentment was exposed. The Sadducees depended on the Romans, created things. The Pharisees depended on themselves, created things. And the disciples too were largely concerned with the world, namely, we forgot the bread, what are we going to do? All of them don't see who's standing right in front of them. The saviour of the world, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. And it makes sense. It's beyond our human experience. Jesus is truly God. He is otherworldly. He is divine. It's outside of our normal experience. So Jesus is trying patiently and determinedly to teach them they need to look beyond the physical to the spiritual reality that's going on. You can't trust the world for your salvation. You can't trust yourself either. You need to trust Jesus. You need to depend on him. Can you all see that our primary concerns in life are not physical? The physical things present themselves loudly, but that's not our primary concern. Our primary concern is spiritual. Our relationship with God, our sinfulness, our need for forgiveness. We'll think more about this at the weekend away. It's hard to grasp because we're physical beings living in a physical world, but this world is passing away. I wonder, are your prayer requests in growth group dominated by physical needs or spiritual needs? Do you ask for prayer for health? Do you ask for prayer for your kids' health? Or do you ask for perseverance in trials so that you might continue to be a godly husband or wife? Do you ask first and foremost that your children will trust in the Lord, will be faithful at school under trial? There's all these kids who don't trust in Jesus and they alone or close to it do. Is that your prayer for your kids? If they're sick, pray they'll get better. That's good. But it's not their primary need. Our primary concern, our primary need is spiritual. And that's what Jesus is trying to help these people see. And it's hard for them to see. It's hard for us to see 2,000 years later. <clears throat> All right. Secondly, we've done that one. We're up to that one. The second thing to do if you want to take up your cross and follow Jesus is acknowledge that he is the Messiah, the son of the living God. Wrap your head around who Jesus actually is. It's impossible to exaggerate just how significant and important the next eight verses of God's word are. They're also in Mark, the same section, slightly different words. 16, 13 to 20 is a, is a pinnacle of the, of the book. It's a hinge on which the whole book turns as Jesus moves towards the cross. It's a really important section. I could preach 
four sermons on, but I won't, sadly. We've seen powerful glimpses of who Jesus is, haven't we? Um, And who he is is here declared by Peter in crystal clear HD 4K definition. Who he is is declared by Peter very clearly. Um, Have a look again. I hope you have or will study this in growth groups. It's a really important passage. Verse 13, look with me in the Holy Scriptures. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. What about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Well done, Pete. Give yourself a pat on the back. Nailed it. Now, I'd love to give you another geography lesson uh, right now about Caesarea Philippi, but time forbids me. Suffice to say that Caesarea Philippi, which is the black backdrop you can see, was a melting pot of pagan religions that all kind of converged on Caesarea Philippi. There was different temples and things for different pagan gods. There was this this big convergence of pagan religions in Caesarea Philippi. It was a very pagan place. And it is in this place, it's this backdrop, that Jesus, the great jewel in the world, chooses to reveal to his disciples most clearly and the world who he really is. It's against this backdrop that we hear that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. It was in Caesarea Philippi that syncretism reigned. Syncretism is the mashing together of different religions, very common in Aboriginal culture when they come to Christ and they still kind of hang on to their dreamtime beliefs as it comes together with trust in Jesus. Syncretism. If we don't have Jesus alone as our Lord and Saviour, we have no Jesus at all. And it's here that Jesus decides to teach and to, and to reveal himself in these stunning eight verses. Um, sorry. Many people in this place and in this time saw Jesus as a great person, as he just asked. Who do people say I am? People, you're John the Baptist, you're Elijah. Lots of people think he's really great. But that's not enough. They need to believe that he's the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and bow down before him to believe that Jesus is really great. But to also hang on to trust in something else is to not trust Jesus at all. And it's what we're tempted to do. Syncretism is still alive and well in our culture. We'll trust Jesus to an extent, but then we'll trust in ourselves and our education and our wealth and our city with all of its abundance of resources. Jesus is the great prophet, priest and king once for all. Jesus is the ultimate prophet who brings the words of God to bear on the world. He's the ultimate priest who will pay the price for the sins of many. The ultimate king 
who has come to rule the world with justice and love. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus is the Son of the Father and truly God himself. It was in Jesus that the world was created. It is in Jesus that the world is sustained. It is because of him we have our next breath and our next heartbeat. It is to him that the whole world is heading and will one day bow down by will or force on that final day. Peter knew this, but only because it had been revealed to him by God in heaven. That Jesus makes it clear in verse 17. And it is on Peter's testimony, who's beginning with Peter and his right testimony given to him by God, that Jesus says he will build his church. It is on Peter and his right testimony, a testimony given to him by God, that Jesus says he will build his church. Verse 18, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock, you and this right testimony given to you by God, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. The rock is Peter's testimony. And for a time, Peter himself, as he preached to the world, and the disciples with the same testimony, they kind of continue to be the rock. It is on the testimony that Jesus builds his church, starting with Peter, continuing with others. It's ultimately upon God's word that his church is built. God's true and powerful words are seen here on the lips of Peter. Does that make sense? That's That's the sense in which he's building his church on the rock that is Peter. Thousands came to faith in Acts chapter 2 at the testimony of Peter, the true testimony given to him by God. Those who trust and believe were welcomed into the kingdom of heaven as they always are, and those who rejected were not welcomed in. And in that sense, Peter and the other disciples bound what could be bound on earth. Those who trusted, those who, uh, sorry, those who rejected continued to be bound by sin. And those who put their trust in Jesus were loosed from sin and welcomed into the kingdom of heaven. It is with the testimony given by God that heaven, God in heaven, uh, accepts the testimony of Peter. That God in heaven condones the rejecting of those who reject the word and the accepting of those who accept the word. Along with that, God has given Peter and the disciples his word so that they know how to conduct goings on in the church and we as we read on uh, we see some more of that in that sense peter and his disciples hold the keys to the kingdom of heaven they have the words of god they have the gospel in that sense they have the keys to the kingdom of heaven in the same sense so do you as you preach as you share the gospel you make the way into the kingdom possible you unlock the door for people to come into the kingdom of heaven as you preach, as you teach, as you share the gospel with them. It's the biblical teaching that will rule the behaviour of the church from this point on. And we saw that as we looked at Philemon uh, as well. 
the, the teaching will rule the church. Now, Roman Catholicism would have it that Peter is still the one, the one and only gatekeeper to the, to the kingdom of heaven. He's standing at the pearly gates, he's got the keys and he'll let us in or not. That's a common belief. But that's, that's not what's going on here. It's God's word, it's the testimony of Christ that unlocks the keys, keys that Peter now has and keys that will be given to many others as well. Generation to generation, father to son, mother to daughter, and still on our lips today is the keys to the kingdom of heaven. We too believe that Jesus is Lord and Messiah, the son of the living God, the one through whom the world was created, the one able to die for the sins of many the one willing to die for the sins of many, the one who rose again in glory, the first fruits of all who put their trust in him. Belief in him is paramount to taking up your cross and following him. If you do not believe he is exactly who he is, you will not take up your cross, deny yourself and follow him. You must recognise that Jesus is God. He is the ultimate rock upon which the church is built. He is the infinitely precious jewel that has been gifted to us all from the Father in heaven. The, church, the growth of the church continued with Peter but ultimately began with Christ. He is our head and our cornerstone. Third point. We need to follow a dead man if we want to take up our cross and follow him. We've learned so far, take up your cross is to distrust the world and yourself spiritually and trust in Jesus. Secondly, it's to recognise and acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And thirdly, it's to follow a person, a man of sorrows, who was rejected, who suffered greatly and who was killed for being who he is at the hands of the world. We're following him. Imagine following him today as people hurled insults at him and rejected him and threatened to kill him and by extension, those who follow him. Would you still follow him? It's from this point in time that Jesus begins to explicitly explain to the disciples the painful truth that ultimately... He has come to die. It's a shocking reality for these men who've grown fond of their friend and their Lord over the last couple of years of ministry. They've been following him around. They've been doing life together, sleeping in the same place, eating together, travelling around. And now he said he's going to die. He must die. Jesus' entry into his kingdom would not be via a typical human kingly triumph and comfort as you expect for a king. It would be through rejection, suffering and death. To follow Jesus is to follow the one who was rejected and suffered and died. To follow Dominic Perrottet is to embrace liberal ideology, at least mostly, to follow Chris Minns is to embrace Labor's ideology, at least for the most part. To follow Jesus is to embrace rejection, suffering and death. Death to self. 
Well, Peter's not having a bar of it. No, nah, ridiculous. It's not going to happen. And he pulls Jesus aside. This isn't going to happen, all right? You can't die. You're too good. You're too great. I love you too much. You can't die. And Jesus rebukes Peter. Peter's not real bright, but he's passionate and he's bold, and I love him for that. Look at verse 22. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. He's absolutely gone from rooster to feather duster in six verses, has Peter. It's not an overreaction from Jesus, though to our ears it might seem so. I think if I said, I said to any of you, get behind me, Satan, you wouldn't take it very well. This is not an overreaction from Jesus. Because it was Satan that first suggested to Jesus in the desert that instead of following the path laid out before him to the cross, he should bow down and worship him and avoid the pain and embrace the wealth and comfort that could be his. Satan was the first person to make that suggestion, to suggest that Jesus Jesus should not go to the cross and die for the sins of many is of the devil. And it condemns the entire of humanity to an eternity of damnation. There is no salvation unless Jesus goes to the cross. It's the words of Satan. It's no small thing that Peter is suggesting. And Jesus' reaction is warranted. Peter's mind was not set on the things of God right now, but on himself. He loves Jesus. I get it. Jesus is awesome. He doesn't want Jesus to die. I get that. But his mind is not set on the things of God, but on the things of man. Glory, honour, comfort, security. Glory, honour, comfort and security. The things we seek for ourselves by nature. I wonder if we too often think the same way Peter did. Take the easy road, don't do that. Take the comfort road, the security road, not the suffering and death road. That's a, that's a bad idea. Upon rebuking Peter right back, Jesus turns to his disciples and he explains his way is not the way of glory, honour, comfort and security, not in this world. In the one to come, yes. In this world, no. In this world, Jesus' way is the way of rejection, suffering, and death. I think I've said it enough times now. And if they want to follow him, that's the path they have to choose. Not security, comfort, rejection, and death. Verse 24. Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their own life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. What does that mean? The natural tendency of the human race is to affirm ourselves 
and to seek to make ourselves as prosperous and as happy as we possibly can. That's human nature. Affirm yourself, I'm a good person, I'm pretty good, I'm not perfect, but I'm pretty good, and to make myself comfortable. It's a little bit hot right now, someone turn the fan down. Josh, thanks. I'm a little bit warm right now. Just a little bit. <laughs> That's human nature, isn't it? I'm just a little bit hot, I'm a little bit cold, I'm a little bit hungry, I'm a little bit sore. What can I do to get back to perfect comfort, or as close as I can get as possible, right? Turn the fan back up a little bit. No, don't turn the fan back up. It's fine. It's great. <clears throat> That's what we do. Because we're sinners. We seek our own well-being, our own prosperity. But Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you have to give up self-serving. Not self-caring. Don't hear me for all me. Self-serving. We have to give up. Seeking to prosper for ourselves for the rest of our life. And instead, seek what is good for the growth of the kingdom. We have to give up sinfulness as well. We can't keep living in sin. We have to deny ourselves that and live the way Jesus wants us to live. That's what it means to take up your cross and follow him. It's a wholehearted decision to make Jesus' priorities your priorities. It's going to lead to rejection from people. It's going to lead to hardship. It's harder than not following Jesus in this life. It really is. Much harder. It will lead to... It must lead to self-sacrifice. It must lead to inconvenience. Not doing what you feel like doing right now because you need to serve someone else. Inconveniencing your plans for the sake of others. Do you inconvenience yourself for the sake of others as a follower of Jesus? To be a Christian is to embrace a life of service of others all the time, 24-7. It's hard, but it's what Jesus did, and we follow him. The Christian devotes all of their time, all of it, to serving Jesus and to serving others. And they're empowered to do so by the Holy Spirit. At home, at work, at church, in your neighbourhood, you seek the good of others over and above yourself, constantly, on the road. When you're driving, <laughs> that's a challenge. You seek the good of others over and above yourself. When you get cut off and the person gets in front of you, you rejoice because they get to go before you. <laughs> They'll get there first. Yay. And the Christian finds their greatest joy and fulfilment in sacrificial service of others as well, rather than just in self-serving. Our greatest joy, we were made by God to worship him and love others, and we find our greatest joy and fulfilment. That's not why we do it. We do it because we love Jesus. But we do find 
our greatest joy and fulfilment in service of others, not self-serving. Imagine a train, a poor, poor train that thought the best thing for itself would be to sit in a field of flowers and enjoy the cool breeze and the warm sun. Very quickly, it would be miserable because a train really wants to be on the tracks, serving and working for the good of others. That's what makes a happy train. And that's what makes a happy Christian is taking up our cross, denying ourselves and living for him. The joyful Christian recognises three things. The world is sinful and broken. It can't save me. I'm sinful and broken. I can't save me. Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. He can save me. And he wants to. There's pockets of wisdom and pockets of happiness in the world, sure. And that's the problem. Because we go looking for those instead of Christ. And we find pockets of happiness and pockets of wisdom. But ultimate wisdom and truth is found in Jesus. He's the Messiah. The son of the living God. In him all things were made. In him all things are sustained. To him all things are headed. He's the one. The only one. And he loves you. And he wants to bless you. In him is infinite and pure trustworthiness and wisdom and love and peace and justice. To take up your cross is to recognise who Jesus is and see you'd be mad not to throw your lot in with him and serve him. To recognise who Jesus is is to, is, to, is to humbly bow and say, what do you think's best? I don't know. The world doesn't know. And Jesus says, deny yourself. Forget about what you want for yourself and your worldly aspirations for yourself. That's not what's best for you. What's best for you is to follow me, which is going to be hard in this life because I was rejected and I suffered And I was killed at the hands of people, despite being innocent. But I rose again in glory, and I'm preparing a place for you in heaven, in the life to come. But for now, it's going to be hard, but it's still what's best for you, is to deny yourself, take up your cross, and live for me. So two implications. What does it mean for us? Firstly, take up your cross. How do you do that? How do you do that? How do I do that? Because how I do that is going to look different to how you do that because we're all different people. So we've got to work it out. You've got to work it out for yourself. I can't tell you, sorry. You've got to work it out for yourself through prayer, through reading God's word and through conversation with other Christians. In growth groups, I'd love it this week, if you're morning tea, working a weekend away. What's it look like? 
to take up your cross, to self-denial, not lack of self-care. Just hear me rightly, everyone, especially the young mums in the room. Not lack of self-care, but self-denial. My hopes and dreams for myself don't matter. Jesus' hopes and dreams for me, if that's what you want to call it, is what mattered. Now, here's a challenge that I heard years ago from a great preacher about 12 years ago. I'm not a great preacher, but this is what the great preacher said, so I'm passing it on. Um, What do we want to look like when we walk into heaven? Imagine you're in heaven and not everyone's arrived yet. And you see the Nigerians arrive and they're bruised and they're battered and they're bloodied from a life of following Jesus in Nigeria with its massive suffering and rejection. And then you see the Koreans, the North Koreans come in and they're malnourished and their skin and bones and they've got no colour in their skin from years and years imprisoned for following Jesus. And then you see the Australians come in and they look like they just got out of the shower and they're fat and they're, you know, love and life. They look like they haven't done a hard day's work in their life. They just kind of trot into heaven. Is that, is that who we want to be as followers of Jesus? Just kind of cruising through this life. Or do we want to work for him? We want to, we want to leave it all on the field for Jesus, right? We want to give him all we've got in this life because he gave us all he's got. We want to give everything to the one who gave everything to us. And I don't know what the reward in heaven is, verse 28. I don't know what it means. I do know we'll be with Jesus and that we'll see his face, face to face with our Lord. That is immeasurable glory in itself, just to be with him. I mean, what reward could there be? over and above just being with Jesus. The only thing I can think of is the joy of seeing those people in heaven with you that you served and that you laboured for. The SRE kids that you taught the Bible to and you don't even know if they were listening because they were sticking a pencil in their friend's ear. But they were and they became Christians four years later, not on your watch, praise God, and there they are in heaven with you, your neighbour, who you're terrified of but lovingly shared the gospel with and by God's grace, he became a Christian or she became a Christian and there they are in heaven with you for all eternity. The kids' church kids, the youth group kids, the Thrive kids that you served and loved and lovingly taught the gospel to, that really inconvenienced you and you had to race out of work and whatever and it was hard, but you did it and there they are in heaven with you for all eternity. Your own kids. Who you worked hard to share the gospel with. You tried to read them the Bible in the mess of things the best you could. You prayed for them. And there they are, in heaven with you for all eternity. Is there any greater blessing than that? It's worth it, isn't it? 
to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Jesus. And the second and last thing I want to say is we have great resources to help us. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit. Don't forget that. You have God in your life working in you all the time as a constant resource. Pray, ask for help, and God will help you, particularly as you seek to serve him and deny yourself. And we have one another. And I don't know, I think we do a pretty good job at utilising one another, but I think we can do even better. I think we can do more to utilise one another. We've all got a lot on our plates, some more than others. We're all, many of us are stretched pretty thin, but if we can share our burdens more, if there's 10 people worrying about my kids and helping, instead of just two, that's got to be helpful. And that's got to free me up to help others more. And I think it will grow like a fire. The more we help one another, the more we enable one another to help one another, if that makes sense. That's not a good sentence. The more we help one another, the more we can help one another. And ultimately, that's what it means to deny yourself and, live, and take up your cross, is to, is to love others. Wherever you are, however you can, if you want to chat more about what it might look like for you, I'm keen. Have a morning tea or some other time. Please keep having this discussion about what it looks like for you to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Jesus. Let me pray. Loving Father and Almighty God, we love you in all your glory and splendour and majesty. We love Jesus. We love the Holy Spirit. We're thankful for assurance of heaven through Christ's willingness to die in his glorious resurrection. We're thankful for the indwelling Holy Spirit to help us to live for you. It's hard in this world. It's getting harder. That's how it's supposed to be, and we know that. So, Lord, please strengthen us for the task of living for you. Help us to help one another to work out how to do it and then help us to help one another to do it, to deny ourselves and to live for Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.